morning, First Church. It's good to be with you. I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 11. That's 122 in your pew Bible. We're going to read verses 19 through 26 together. And before we read, just a moment of, of personal reflection, if I may. This is a very special church to me. I'm honored to be here. Many, many dear friends in this congregation, many of whom are almost like family. So it's a real honor to be here with you today and to fill in for David. Um, David is a special part of this community. And um, I started to say David is special, but that, that's true. He's special. But um, we love him, and I'm just I'm honored to uh, fill the pulpit here at this, this historic church. That I, I just want to thank you for committing to stay downtown. Uh, it means a lot. So thank you very much for having me today. Let us read together. I will, I will read Acts chapter, uh, chapter 11, verses 19 and following. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to none except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were coming to Antioch and spoke to the Greeks also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number that believed turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a large company was added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a large company of people. And in Antioch, the disciples were for the first time called Christians. And this is the word of God for the people of God. What I'd like to do this morning is introduce you to a church that is unique in so many ways. In this church, there were at least nine different ethnicities represented. In the, the, the key pastoral and elder roles, there was multi-ethnic representation. Yet the church was located in the midst of a city that was fraught with intolerance and race riots that were even common. In fact, Jewish synagogues had been burned in this very city. Sociologist Rodney Stark said this about the city. He said, the city was so lacking in stable networks of attachments that petty incidents could prompt mob violence. Yet the members of this church somehow managed to embrace their cultures of origin, but set aside certain cultural differences or rights that, in, that inhibit their ability to live as one in Christ. And for some, this meant risking the possibility of being viewed as having close relationships with pagans. I mean, this was a radically unique church. In the midst of a city in which race riots were common, synagogue torchings were happening, this church somehow managed to be multi-ethnic and diverse as it were. 
And in spite of the resistance of the community, Scripture teaches that in one month, three, at least 3,000 people became part of this church. It was a unique and an un, unheard of situation. So unique, in fact, that the social commentators of the day didn't know what to call it. They, they really didn't. Uh, in, in the Emerson and Young's book, United by Faith, they said it this way. The church could not be classified according to the standard terminology of pagan or Jewish. This group was both, yet neither. They were bound together by a new intimacy and a mutual concern that went beyond the normal, acceptable behavior within the community. What a beautiful statement about a church that goes beyond the normal, acceptable behavior and lives out of a mutual concern. And it was in this place that the new word coined was Christian. And this is literally the first church. Antioch is where Christians were first called Christians. And I wonder today, as social commentators look at the world around us, and look at the modern church in 24th century America, I wonder if it's incumbent upon them to coin a new word to describe the unbelievable things that are happening in our midst. To describe our diversity. To describe our mutual love for one another. To describe the love of God being shed abroad in the communities we serve. Unfortunately, when we look at the church today in America, we learn that only uh, that 94% of the American Christian churches are what we would call homogenous. In that, it means that over 80% of the congregations look exactly the same, or the congregation looks exactly the same. The same race, the same ethnicity, the same socioeconomic status, 80% of the people in 94% of our churches. And the question is, how? How did we move from this beautiful mosaic that we saw in Antioch that was so diverse and so filled and overflowing with the love of God and the love for one another, how did we move from that to a church today that is essentially homogenous? Each congregation looks like each congregation. And you see rich worshiping with rich, poor with poor, white with black, Latinx with Latinx, but we don't see that blending together in more than 6% of our churches at any measurable level. How does that happen? In a relatively short amount of time. The church is young in this respect. 2,000 years in relation to all of eternity is a short, relatively short amount of time. This question of the church's composition came flooding down upon me, or raining down maybe, several years ago when our friends from Great Britain, Ian and Abby Harrison, visited us here in Gaston County. They brought their family. It was their first trip to America ever. And as we were out and about in the community, having a meal at a restaurant, visiting a park, visiting a shopping center, whatever, 
Abby, who's very insightful, noticed that about every third person she saw looked different from the other three, she, the other two who she had seen. Maybe their economic status looked a little different. Maybe their skin color. Maybe their educational level. She noticed this diversity in our, in our country, in our community. So standing in the doorway of my lily-white conservative church at the time, she asked me, she said, Duane, why do churches not look like the community? Why are the churches so different? And I gave her the answer that I knew in my heart wasn't right, but I said it anyway. I said, well, Abby, we're, there are cultural differences in the way people worship, and we just sort of, and I, I should have choked on it when I said it, I said, we just sort of fall into these categories on Sundays. Okay, we both knew it wasn't true, and we talked about it, and we spent time working on it, and I've begun, become a student of it since then, and I wonder in our culture what other entity besides the church takes such pride, as it were, in being so homogenous. Think about it. What if... In Saxon's choir here at First Methodist, he had nothing but alto voices. No soprano, no bass, no tenor, nothing. Would that be a choir in the true sense of the word? What if the Panthers, our beloved Panthers, what if the new season opens in a couple months and we look at the roster and there are 53 place kickers. No other positions. Or maybe 80% of the roster is place kickers. But it's still out of balance. Or an artist. What if, what if an artist were to look at her palette and realize she only has one color? Well, what makes art art is its diverse color. It, it, it's the beauty of it. And yet, we would never rejoice in that. But yet we live with the status quo in our churches that we would never tolerate in our sports teams or our art or our music or our entertainment. And the question just plagued me. How could we move from this, what I call a mosaic of the first century, to this almost... just one colored statue that we are now or one dimensional it's not just about color it's about everything from economics to social status to all those things and we would get to a point that would lead to what i consider one of the most bizarre incidences in relatively modern church history in the book the arrogance of faith the author forrest wood tells a story of an anti-slavery, antebellum era church in Massachusetts. In this church, for the first time ever, a family of color purchased their own pew. This was historic. The first Sunday this family showed up to worship in their pew, they found that the pew had been removed in an effort to keep them away. They stood bravely and worshipped, actually sitting on the floor that day. 
The next week they returned, fully expecting to sit on the floor again. And the very floorboards that, that, that originally held the, the, the pew had been removed. And the family stood to their side and worshipped alone, rather than joining in the body of worship. And I wonder how in the world could that happen? But it has. And as we look around at our churches today, we're not removing pews, but we all look the same. We all tend to think the same. We all eat at the same restaurants, worship in the same style. Even our, our thoughts are kind of an echo chamber sometimes. So I looked more closely at Scripture, and in Acts 10 and 11, the, the, the chapters sur surrounding what we've read this morning, there's a really interesting story that has three facets to it. And in our closing moments, I would like to share that story. I would like to encourage you to read that story on your own. Because it's the story of Cornelius, a Roman, uh, a Roman soldier, as it were, and Peter, and a man named Simon the Tanner. And here's what happened. This Roman soldier, who was not Jewish, obviously, was instructed by God, his name is Cornelius, he was instructed by God to send for Peter, a devoutly Jewish man, part of the founding patriarchy of the church. He, would send, he was to send for him. So he sent an, an entourage, and off they went. The, Cornelius was not sure why, he just knew God had told him to do it. Peter, in the meantime had been having some really amazing things happen. If you remember Peter from Scripture, Peter was pretty impetuous. He was, he was outspoken. So God had to really speak to him in a bold way to get his attention, I'm sure. Peter had, had, this, had experienced this vision in which two things happened. One, a sheet, as it were, or a vision of animals of all kinds came down in front of Peter in this vision. And there were animals in there that were safe, as it were, as, as by Jewish standards. But there were also animals in there that were considered unclean. Shellfish, um, pork, pigs, those kinds of things. Yet God instructed Peter to eat any of those he, he chose. So while Peter's grappling with this vision, God also sends him to reside temporarily in the home of Simon, who is a tanner of skins. Well, Simon's work involved touching and dealing with the carcasses of animals, which was considered in Jewish tradition and law unclean. Tradition teaches that the tanners for the community had to live 75 yards beyond the, the village center just to be sure nobody incidentally or accidentally became unclean by interacting with the work they were doing. Yet God is sending Peter, this devout Jew, to stay, to lodge in this tanner's house, and he's telling him to eat. God's telling Peter to eat whatever. He even said, Nothing, that what I have called clean do not call unclean. This, is, this has Peter just perplexed. And while he's sifting through all this, the biblical narrative teaches us that Cornelius' entourage showed up for Peter. 
Peter, already at a loss, left and went into the house of a, of a, of a Greek man, a non-Jew. And in the matter of a few days to travel and all that happened, we find Peter, this one of the most devoutly religious people in the history of, of the church, breaking bread, fellowshipping, and enjoying the company of Gentiles. And Peter stood in the midst of this and made this statement. And Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. I look at that story and I think, how did we get from where we started with a church father having this great vision and standing up and declaring to us, God has shown us that we should not call any person common or unclean to the place where we're so highly divided, even within our own churches sometimes, over ideologies. We live in a country now where it seems that the art of dialogue and, and healthy discussion has passed. And instead of trying to engage in healthy discussion in our communities, we seem to retreat into our churches away from it. But yet God is calling us to love and to know all our neighbors. Yale professor Dr. Frank Comer says, No learning, no significant learning takes place without significant relationship. We must come out of our churches, in, out of the pews, onto the pavement, spilling out and knowing the people in our community. Then our churches will begin to look more like the first century church. They will be more diverse. There will be more of different kinds of thinking and ways of doing things. There will be a different level of socioeconomic involvement in church bodies. But it's incumbent on us to love all our neighbors as ourselves. And you may be looking at this and thinking, look, Chaplain Duane, that's not for me. I can't do it. I can be nice. I can be polite. But I can't deal with those people. And you fill in the blank. It may be Republicans, it may be Democrats, it may be Independents, it may be Blacks, it may be Whites, it may be Latinx, it may be LBGTQ. You fill in the blank. I can't love those people. I can be polite, but I can't love them like I do the, the person in the pew beside me today. And I remind, I'm reminded of one story that will draw this together that did for me. And it's from a little novel I read called Words by Heart by Weta Sebastian. It's set in the early 1900s. The main character is a young girl about 12 years old named Lena. Lena witnessed the illicit and unfounded attack upon her father that was going to take his life. He had collapsed in front of her in this story after being viciously attacked. She knew his life was ebbing away, never to return. And she cradled her father in her hands, knowing that she would be left alone, cherishing every moment she had with him in those final moments of his life. And to her right, she looked, and the assailant was still alive after this vicious attack. 
but he was injured. Yet without medical assistance, he too would die. And this young girl held life and death in her own hands. She held her father. She looked at him. She loved him. She wanted to cherish every second that remained. But to her right was the person who, was killing, who had killed her father. And he needed her help. And she looked down on him. And the novelist says she could not love him. But she loved someone who knew how to love him. And that was a beginning. She loved someone who knew how to love him. And that was a beginning. And that is the place to which I call First Church today. You may not feel in yourself that you can love fill in the blank. That you can embrace them. It may be an estranged family member. I don't know. It may be an estranged friend. You feel like I can't love them. And you can't, but you know someone who can, and that person we know is Christ Jesus, who has loved us with an everlasting love, just as he loves that person, fill in the blank, with an everlasting love, and is calling us to pour out our lives and to let his love flow through us as the life of Christ, which is our life, flows through us. We know someone who knows how to love, and may the prayer of our lives and our hearts be found to be the words of the psalmist, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise ye the Lord.